This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Uh, all right. Who's in charge? By which I don't mean Bridget. There we <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense over Kai's chuckles. I should be clear here, Bridget, Bridget is in charge. That was just, it was a, yeah, I don't even know what it was. I'm Kai Rizzo. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It is Monday today, the 12th day of June, 2023. We are going to do some news and then get to some smiles. But before we get to that, we want to say a big thank you to everybody who made it out to our first ever live show in Seattle last week. It was super fun. So thank super you for fun. that. Yeah. Absolute All right. Blast. So absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's get to the news. Uh, Kai, okay. why don't you go first? All right. Uh, uh, so number one, and this is more in the realm of just giving people news they can use just to be aware of how big a deal this I-95 thing is. If you live on the East Coast, you know how big a deal this I-95 thing is, right? It's the main corridor up and down the eastern seaboard. There was, of course, a truck that crashed on an underpass. There has since actually been human remains found. One assumes that is the truck driver. He was driving a load of, of uh, fuel and it exploded horrible fire and the southbound lane of I-95 collapsed. That's a very big deal if you live on the East Coast. If you live inland from the East Coast, though, uh, it's also a big deal for you. I will cite this report from Bloomberg. Beyond the city's heart, Philadelphia, the highway provides access to the airport, the Philadelphia port, with a foreign trade zone, an automobile terminal that can process 1,000 vehicles a day, and a wholesale produce market that is the world's largest enclosed refrigerated space of its kind, according to its operator. Wow. So. Um, logistics and supply chain and all that stuff are, as we have seen over the past three years, extremely fragile. Um, and when something like this happens, it's a big deal. There will be disruptions. So be ready. And I just want to make sure everybody's aware of that. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. And I'm sure in a few months we'll uh, hear in earnings calls that it has contributed to higher oh, yeah, costs. For that sure. will be somehow a- passed on we, to the consumer. The, absolutely. It's just because that's, <laughs> that's the way American capitalism rolls. So there's that. Yeah. The second one is an article in Bloomberg Business Week, which is kind of amazing. So we talk a lot, not not – you know, recently, but we have talked a lot about uh, electric vehicles. We've talked about batteries and supply chains, and we've talked about how a lot of them, maybe not here, but also on marketplace as well, a lot of the um, batteries being built for EVs right now are being built in China. They have some uh, majority share of the world's EV um, battery market. And they have it because they bought an American company out of bankruptcy a decade ago that had this amazing technology and had um, a jump on the industry and then couldn't make it work because they were too early. And I highly recommend this piece if you want to understand why industrial policy matters. We had a great conversation with Derek Thompson of The Atlantic about industrial policy in this country. Um, A lot of it we're doing right. A lot of it we're not. And electric vehicle batteries are one we have not. It's called America's Long Tortured Journey to Build EV Batteries. We're a decade behind and trying to catch up. I recommend it highly, 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 highly. Oh, man, that looks super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Something that may be a little bit drier in terms of reading, uh, but also super important, it's the story in Wired. This article itself is, is interesting, but the other associated reading might be dry but important. So on Friday, a document was declassified that people have been sort of demanding for quite some time. And it reveals that the U.S. government has been amassing all of this data about our own citizens because they have been buying it off of the retail market. So in most cases, the U.S. government, if they want information about your personal life, where you're going, what you're doing, uh, movements related to your phone, what you've been buying, they'd have to get a warrant, right, to get that mm-hmm. kind of information. However, commercial actors, these data brokers, have a lot of that information anyway. And so rather than getting warrants for things, various arms of the U.S. government have just been buying this data wholesale from commercial brokers. Mm. And um, the (laughs) the U.S. government, let's see, I'm trying to find the exact thing. So basically, the office of the Director of National Intelligence has been warning that this is probably going a little bit too far. And so Mm. the members of Congress have been pressing the office of of the Director of National Intelligence to reveal how their own investigation of how pervasive this is turned out. Because apparently this report was so – let's see – unflattering to the U.S. government, (laughs) yes, that – and it came up um, in a hearing on March 8th, and at the time it was classified. It has been released, obviously redacted, and I'm just uh, reading this. The ODNI own panel of advisors makes clear the government's static interpretation of what constitutes publicly available information poses a significant threat to the public. The advisors decry existing policies that automatically conflate in the first place being able to buy information with it being considered public. The information being commercially sold about Americans today is more revealing, available on more people, less possible to avoid, and less well understood than that which is traditionally thought as being publicly available. And it's a problem. So mm. the report the report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is available. Obviously, it's redacted. I started reading. It's only about 48 pages long. It's a lot of information that's available about us that the U.S. government can get on its citizens. And the headline is, the U.S. is openly stockpiling dirt on all its citizens. So there's wow. that. Not great. Yeah. Not, Not great. great. <laughs> but you know what? We know about it, which means that people can do something about it. So I'm Yeah, that's true. That's true. That that, that, yeah. that is the good part of it. Okay. Do, do not so the other thing <laughs> that I noticed today, um, we've talked on the show quite a bit about whether or not companies are pulling back from sort of taking stances on political issues and social justice issues after all this backlash. In fact, they are. And there is data now to back this up. So the Wall Street Journal has a story where they actually went through earnings calls and checked to see where executives mentioned ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governance, or DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or Sustainability Mm -hmm. 
in the earnings call. And <laughs> companies' mentions of green and social initiatives during earnings calls have fallen off sharply in recent quarters, reversing a more boastful approach taken over the past few years amid intensifying pressure from some investors and conservative activists. A couple of interesting numbers from here. Um Executives at the U.S. at the U.S. listed companies that mentioned those terms on 575 earnings calls from April 1st to June 5th, down 31 percent from the last year. Hmm. Chief financial officers who often oversee sustainability and diversity efforts um, mentioned the topics on 93 calls from April 1st to June 5th, down 30 percent from the prior year period. So that's. Hmm. That's what happened. It's if, not just yeah. in our heads. <laughs> no, and I'd be lying if I said I was surprised, you know? Yeah. 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 So that's the news that I've got. Uh, let's do yeah. some smiles. Let's. All right, go ahead. Okay, so this is fun just because I am not a surfer. One day I would like to try it. I think it would be fun. But the Associated Press has a story about every year there is a certain confluence of events at the Amazon River's mouth where it creates some of the world's longest lasting waves because the incoming tide comes up river in this broad band that apparently can keep surfboards afloat for miles. And it has to do with where the moon is and where the tides are. And so people come from all over the world to surf these epic waves. And there's an annual festival, which I think is super cool because – People come in for this festival, but in the past, this was a very damaging thing, and people really were worried about it. And the uh, phrase for this, which I'm probably going to mess up, pororoca, is believed to derive from an indigenous word for either big roar or destructor. The phenomenon has done its share of destruction in remote riverside communities in this area, but it also provides them with revenue for sports tourism. So these companies, these areas and these people are taking something that could hmm. be really damaging and harnessing it to make it an event and bring their community's revenue, which I think is pretty cool. That it can cool. be incredibly dangerous. Obviously, people, you know, be careful. But the videos of these surfers are pretty cool. Yeah, I bet it's wild. I bet it's wild, actually. Yeah. Uh, okay. So here is mine, and it comes with the note that uh, shares of Amazon today closed at $126.57 a share. I mention that because on the 25th of May, Jeff Bezos, a name you might know in regards to Amazon, bought a single share of Amazon at $114.77. So he is up uh, a little bit less than 12 bucks in, uh, what, like three weeks. It's the first share of Amazon that Bezos has bought since at least 2002. Nobody knows why he bought just one share. It's it's a little bit of a quirky little mystery. I just thought it was kind of interesting, a little weird, a little, hmm, what's up with this? I will, however, point out that according to the, FC, the Securities and Exchange Commission Form 4 that he had to file when he did this, he still does own 990,500,000, sorry, 990,545,661 shares of the company. So, you know, he's still good. 
Okay. He's still good. That's so He's random. Anyway, he bought a single share. I mean, you have to wonder how he did it, right? Did he have his lawyer call up his broker and say, hey, we need one? You know, that's my, that's I, uh, years and years ago, I bought a single share of Microsoft for my cousin when he graduated oh. from high school because it was like one of those things where you can buy a single share of a company mm-hmm. and put in mm-hmm. it, they put sure. in a little stock certificate in a frame. And <laughs> a couple years ago, he told me that he sold it and he like made bank on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I was just like, totally I bought one for myself. Not that we individually hold stocks, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, maybe Bezos really quickly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Off of the one Sorry. stock. Those of you who donated in our May fundraising drive, or frankly have ever donated, uh, thank you, first of all. But also on Thursday evening, I'm going to be a guest speaker at a virtual marketplace investors town hall event. That is going to be hosted by our one and only general manager, Neil Scarborough. So we're going to be talking about marketplace's plans for the next year. And also a little bit of upcoming election coverage and some other interesting topics. So if you've given to Marketplace before, you are invited. And so you can check your inbox for the invitation. If you're not a Marketplace investor yet, you do still have some time. You can give absolutely any amount at marketplace.org slash give smart. And then you too will be invited. That is it for us today. Back tomorrow for our Tuesday show. We're going to do our live conversation that we had Friday with one of Seattle's best, author and comedian Lindy West. She was amazing. We will cover all sorts of ground. Totally fascinating conversation. That is coming up tomorrow. Yeah, it's super interesting. Until then, if you have a question, a comment, a suggestion, or a combination of all the above, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Marissa Cabrera is our senior producer, but stepping in for her today, Bridget Bodner, our director of podcasts, and Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And done. Happy Monday. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.